Welcome to the Sunny Hill Podcast. This message was recorded at our pool campus. For more information about service times and locations, please visit sunnyhill.church. It's good to be here, isn't it? Go on, okay, that's cool. We'll just leave it at that, shall we? Um, we're in a series right now called Dream Builders, and um, really the heart of this series is to try and challenge us to rise to a greater measure of faith, but also connection. And um, so next week is going to be the final message in our series. And then what we're going to be launching is our Dream Builders Network. We're going to be looking for people who call Sunny Hill their home to really partner with us in a greater, more meaningful way than maybe they ever have in the past. And every week as I've talked this series, I've started with a problem. I've started with presenting to you a problem, a problem that I see a little bit at Sunny Hill, but also a problem I see in the wider church in the UK. And then like I have over the rest of the week, weeks, uh, we're going to take that problem and over the remainder of our time try and speak into it, what does God say about the problem. So here's the problem, okay? Circles, they're vicious. No, that's not the problem. Circles, right? This is how I see church life and church community play out. There are two circles of church. On the one circle, we call it the fringe. We call it the fringe. The people on the periphery of all that God's doing and wanting to do. People who maybe call Sunny Hill their home, but maybe um, attend for whatever reason super uh, sporadically or semi-regularly, maybe once a month or so, whatever. And then we have another circle of Sunny Hill, which is called the core. These people are more than just, if you like, attendees. These are people who we would consider to be owners and culture carriers. And uh, what we're going to be calling these people uh, as of next week are dream builders. Now, here's the challenge that we have in the Western Church and indeed at Sunny Hill is that we have a growing fringe but a core of people who that isn't growing in proportion to the expansion of the fringe, okay? Um, Now, if you're on the fringe for whatever reason, this isn't a judgmental message at you. We understand that there are seasons where we sit on the edge of stuff and there are seasons where we need a time out. So this isn't a guilt trip. I'm not trying to strong arm people into more meaningful engagement. I'm just trying to help you understand the problem as I see it. Because actually, the fringe is okay for a season to kind of navigate the edge of church life. Maybe you've not been here long and you're trying to get a sense of what we're about and who we are and who's this crazy preacher that keeps getting up every week and talking all sorts of craziness and you know why do they jump when they worship and what's all that kind of stuff about and you're kind of making assessment about actually do I want a journey to the core and that's cool that's acceptable providing that that kind of thought process doesn't go on for 20 years okay because at some point we need to be moving towards meaningful engagement but there's another side of the fringe where actually people think this is what being a part of Sunny Hill actually is is actually we sit on the edge of church life, we sit on the periphery of church life, and essentially we're just spectators. Now, the problem with that is that, you know, there will be times when you come to Sunny Hill and there's a very, very, very slim chance that you're going to get offended, okay? Very, very little chance, a tiny little chance. Phil always says stuff that is so offensive. <laughs> that about you, I'm wrestling on the inside, he can't say that to me. Um, And the problem is, if our engagement into Sunny Hill is only fringe deep, 
What happens is we think, oh, I'm not sure I like it there anymore. And what we do is we go to the Baptist church down the road and we live on the fringe there for a little while until somebody hacks us off. And then what we do is we go, oh, what about that nice Anglican church? That's quite cool. You know, it's like New Wine S, that's cool. So I kind of travel from here over to there and live on the fringe. And that's kind of cool. But then, you know, oh, they wore shorts when they were preaching. That offended me. Okay, now I'm down here. And, and basically what happens is church remains in a place of infancy because all we've ever done is lived on the edge of all that God is doing. It's actually incredibly unhealthy for mental health because you don't really know where you lie. Now, as I say, this isn't a guilt trip because actually what I want to say to you is that if you're on the fringe because you actually hate the core of Sunny Hill, it probably is time that you get off the train, right? And you think, you can't say that as a pastor. Well, you know, ultimately, God's heart for you is meaningful involvement in the local church. That's the end goal. He wants you to be rooted and established in godly community. And if Sunny Hill is roadblocking that outcome to you, and you're looking, thinking, I'm never going to go that way because look at, look at, look at, look at Dom. Look at, I mean, look at Richard. Dom's fine. Look at Richard. Like, my gosh, there's no way I'm going that way. I'm only going to ever go this way. Well, actually, it's so important that we value the community of God. I love what Jesus says about the parable of the scattered seed. He says this in Matthew 13, essentially. This is my paraphrase. For a seed to grow... It must be planted in good soil. If a seed continues to sit on the edge of the earth and then blows into the next field and sits there for another year, it doesn't matter how long it's going to sit there. If it's not getting planted into the soil, it's never going to produce fruit. And you'll see in your notes that there is a place for you to fill that line out and then there's another verse for you to read. Because the big picture is this, is we need to do community in order to achieve the purposes and dreams of God. Imagine my children, Caleb, Judah, and Zeke, just for a moment. Imagine if every year they moved into a different house. I think sometimes Caleb would like that idea because he thinks we're strict, right? Louise is pretty strict, to be fair. I'm, pretty, I'm a cool dad, but she's full on, right? And what if he went into another house and then was there for a year, and then as soon as things got a bit more challenging, he moved on to the next house? Ultimately, by the time he reaches adulthood... He would be kind of a bit of a stunted human being. There would be a measure of dysfunction because he hasn't lived in consistent community. And what I understand is this, is that consistent godly values and consistent godly community enable people to flourish. Community is all over the New Testament, although the word community isn't there. What does community mean? It means common unity. Everybody say common unity. It's to be united around a cause or a person or something, okay? And even though the word community isn't in the New Testament, there's other words that are, like ecclesia. Ecclesia means the community that is called out of the world. It's like a community of people, a group of people, a core of people that is lifted out of the world. That's one way that the church is spoken about in Greek, the ecclesia. Then there's another word, koinonia. Does anyone know what that means? Fellowship. In Acts 2, they devoted themselves to koinonia, fellowship. What does it mean? Participation. And so we see this idea in the New Testament of community being vital. In fact, here are some sound bites. Jesus prays this in John 17. Let them be one as we are one. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. You are all members of one body. In Hebrews, it says, do not forsake meeting together. This is really important. Spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We read this in Acts 2. The believers had everything in common. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, there is this huge, huge emphasis on getting rooted into community. And this is why. 
This is why. Even more important than being here for the community, we are here as a community. Not lots of conviction to that, really, is there? <laughs> yeah, but isn't it? <laughs> yeah, even more important than being here for the world and the lost is the fact that we are here as one community. If you take our vision statement, the fact we're here for the one, you could put it like this. We are here for the one by being here as a one. Like this is what Paul's talking about, the body of Christ. You can't have a leg over there, an arm over here, a nose over there. It's got to be united in one space, in one frame. In fact, Jesus says this in John 13. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're mine. Like actually, it's, it's through the way you love one another. It's the way that you're committed to one another in good times and in bad times. That is your most effective witnessing tool. Like before we even consider the commission and all the people that don't know Jesus yet, before we even try and love them, let's just try and love ourselves and love one another. So important. Because often the world gets exposed to a church that is totally disunited. A church where people kind of come and go and you're trying to build core, but ultimately Jesus is saying, no, listen, it's by your commitment, your devotion, your love for one another in good times and bad that shouts to the world, we belong to Jesus. It's so important. Reminding you of Nehemiah's story that he's this exile who comes to rebuild Jerusalem. He's got a heart and he's emotionally connected to the dream. He so wants to see Jerusalem restored and rebuilt. And so he can't do this on his own. And so he's got to recruit community. And so we ask them, who's going to help? And we read this in Nehemiah 2.18. Yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. Because here's the big picture. To dream build is an individual decision, but it's a community effort. In other words, you have to decide in your own heart, am I going to be a dream builder? And once you've made that decision, you kind of lose yourself into the community of God. I'm now going to read to you, because I love you so much, the most boring chapter in the Holy Bible. Okay? You say, Don, none of the Bible's boring. I can show you some boring bits. There's some bits in there that are a real slog to get through. Like the Bible reading plan's good until you hit a chapter like this. And then you're like, maybe I'll do a different reading plan. You know, I've number of times, I mean, none of you can relate to this because obviously you're way holier than me. But where you try to read from Genesis to Revelation and then you hit like Leviticus and you're like, oh my gosh. Like, God, what, why is that in there? Can anyone relate? Cool, thank you for being honest. Right, anyways, Nehemiah 3 is one of the most seemingly boring chapters in the Bible. And if you don't know why, you're going to find out why in the next 15 minutes as I read to you the whole thing. Who's excited? You excited? Good, because ultimately the reason I'm doing this is because I want to find out who is the actual core of Sunny Hill Church. Like who's still in the room by the time I get to the end of this chapter? You know, when I was reading them, I was like, why on earth is this in here? And hopefully today, I want to help you understand why. And so if the people at the back can follow me with the words on the screen, that would be helpful. But we're going to start here. Look. So Nehemiah has asked people to help work, and they says, yes, we'll help build. And it says, then Eliashib, everyone say Eliashib. Eliashib. The high priest. Here's Eliashib. Everyone say hello to Eliashib. Eliashib. The high priest. And you're owning it, man. It's good. Can I just show us a bit of 
Come on, boom. Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priest started to rebuild the sheep gate. Okay? They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and the Tower of Hananel. So the sheep gate was such an important gate to the city of Jerusalem. It was the place where the sacrificial lambs would be brought in on the Day of Atonement and all that sort of stuff. Okay? Then we read verse 2. Jonathan, can you come up, please, mate? Thank you, mate. Love this boy. Everyone give Jonathan a big wave. Hey, link arms with Adam. People from the town of Jericho, that's who you are, worked next to them. Everyone say next to them. Okay? And beyond them was Zachar. Come on, Zachar. Everyone say hello to Zachar. Zachar, son of Imri, right? Then the fish gate was built by the sons of, right, Hassana. Right, you've all got to get ready, okay? Hassana, right? So you're building the fish gate. Look at you, okay? If I was going to give anyone that job, it would be Louise, my wife, because she hates fish. Okay, so you're building the fish gate, and it's all scaly and slimy. Okay? They laid the beams, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Miamoth, everyone say hello to Miamoth. Son of Uriah and grandson of Hakkaz repaired the next section. Everyone say next section. Of wall beside him. Ah, oh, this is beautiful. Uh, where Meshalem, son of Berechiah and grandson of Meshazabal, and then Zadok, son of Bainat. Like, you're struggling to listen to this. This is the third time I've read this today, okay? Next, come on up. Huh? Everyone say next were the. Next were the people from Tekoa. Okay, so that's you, right? Though their leaders refused to work with the construction supervisors. They love leaders like that. Your people work, we're going to rest, okay? The old city gate was repaired by Joyada. Come on up, Joyada. Joyada, son of Passia, and Meshalem, son of Besodea. They laid the beam, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Next to them, everyone say next to them. Come on up. Next to them were Melatiah from Gibeon, Jadon from Mirnoth, people from Gibeon, and people from Mizpah, the headquarters of the governor of the province west of the Euphrates River. Next was, come on up, Ollie, everyone say next was Uziel. Uziel, Ali, can I get a Uziel? <laughs> he hates me now for life, fact. Next was Uziel, son of Hahaya, a goldsmith by trade who also worked on the wall. Next to him, everyone say next to him. Next to him, where are we? Could someone help me out? Next to him was Hananiah, a manufacturer of perfumes. Go, oh yeah, go on. Oh, yeah. Lovely, lovely, lovely. They left out a section of Jerusalem as they built the broad wall. Rephaniah, come on up. Oh, sorry, Rephiah, son of Hur, the leader of a half the district of Jerusalem, was next to them. Everyone say next to them on the wall. Okay, next. Come on up. I'm working through the line. So if, if you really don't want to do this, just give me a little X factor like that and I won't pull you up, okay? But it's too late for you. You're on it, okay? So next, Jediah, son of Harumath, repaired the wall across from his own house. And next to him, everyone say, next to him was Hatush. Everyone go, Hatush. Hatush. Son of Hashabaneah. That's how you pronounce it, by the way. I've mastered my Hebrew. Hashabaneah. Why? I've asked this a thousand times whilst preaching in this exact platform. Why can't he just use names like Gary and Roger and Clive and stuff like that? Okay. Verse 11. Okay. Come on up, Bonnie. Then came Malkajar. Malkajar, hello, Malkajar. Malkajar is quite rude in the Bible. It's one of my least favorite characters. <laughs> Son of Harry. I'm making so many enemies today, right? This is so much fun. And... I told you, I'm going to test the core of the church today, one way or the other. Malkajar, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Pahath Moab, who repaired another section of the wall and the towers of the ovens. Emily, can you come up, please? Shalom. Shalom. Hello, Shalom. Hello. <laughs> this is awesome. You guys are brilliant. Son of Halahesh and his daughters repaired the next section. Everyone say the next section. He was the leader of the other half of the district of Jerusalem. Who's living life right now? 
You're loving it. Good, because we're a third of the way through, right? Verse 13, the valley gate was repaired by the people from Zenoah. Peter, come on, people from Zenoah. Led by Hanan. Close to Hannah, actually. Hanan, Hannah. Are you led by Hannah? That's a... <laughs> Love it. Yes. Yes, yes, she's there. Yeah. Get permission first. They set up its doors and installed its bolts and gates... And you're going to love this, Pete. Are you ready for this? They also repaired the 1,500 feet of wall to the dung gate. That's why I picked you for that specific role. Because the dung gate needed a building. What was the dung gate? It was the gate where everyone took all basically the rubbish out of the city. Human waste, sewage, uh, dead stuff was going out of that gate that Pete just built. I mean, if I was Nehemiah, I would have put the perfume maker building that gate over there. I said, I don't care what it looks like as long as it smells good, okay? Um, now, where are I? The Dungate was repaired by Milkajah, son of Rechab, the leader of the Beth Hakram district. He rebuilt it, set up its doors, and it stores its bolts and bars. The Fountain Gate, right? Gosh, close to the Dungate, which is scary because you don't want a fountain of dung, was repaired by Shalom, son of Kohoses. Anyone want to be Shalom? Heidi, can you come and be Shalom, please? Come on. You, you still love me, yeah? High five? High five for the love. There we go. The leader of Mizpah district, he rebuilt it, roofed it, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Then he repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam near the king's garden, and he rebuilt the wall as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. As a side note, just thinking of Dungate, because i got a one-track mind. It was so funny yesterday, right? In a couple of weeks, we're going to be launching into 52 days of prayer and fasting, and I was uh, talk about that in a little while, and uh, someone just asked me about it on email. So I sent them a response back, and I didn't realize that I actually typed, we're going to do 52 days of prayer and farting. <laughs> so when they sent me an email back saying, well, have we, have we been sponsored by Heinz Beans or something? I didn't get the link, and then I read through the email. I was like, I should always check my spelling before I hit send on that bad boy, right? Verse 16, next to him, Ben, can you come up, please? Next to them, next to him was Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, and you can be the last one I'm going to do because we don't have another hour. The leader of the half of the district of Bethsa, he rebuilt the wall from a place across from the tombs of David's family as far as the water reservoir and the house of the warriors. So now I'm just going to read through to the end, and every time you see a next to that's in bold on there, Read it with me, okay? So verse 17, here we go. Next to him, repairs were made by a group of Levites working under the supervision of Rehum, son of Barney. Next to them, Hashbiah, the leader of the half-district of Kela, who supervised the building of the wall on behalf of his own district. Next down the line were his countrymen led by Binawai, son of Henadad, the leader of the other half of the district of Kela. Next to them, <clears throat> was that not in bold up there? Next to them, thank you very much. Next to them, it's like a school lesson. I know it's up there. Next to them, Ezer, son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section of the wall across from the ascent to the armory near the angle in the wall. Next to him was Baruch, son of Zebai, who zealously repaired an additional section. I love that idea of someone being zealous. Like, we haven't read that so far. This one was eager to build. Anyone want to be a zealous builder in here? Lee? Come on, you come and be my zealous builder, mate. Come on, sorry, I didn't say I wasn't going to get any more. Can you try and come as zealously as possible, please? <laughs> no, no, no. Is that an impression of me, like all bulked up and everything? Yeah, yeah, cool. All right, come and join one of the ends over here, right? Okay. So this guy is super pumped about building the wall. Can anyone tell me where on earth I am in the verses right now? Okay, let's start again then. Right, now I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. Although I don't have a clue where I am. 20, okay, you could have said 30 and I wouldn't have known, so your mistake, okay. 
Next to him was Baruch, son of Zabai, who zealously repaired an additional section from the angle to the door of the house of Elishib, the high priest. Miamoth, son of Uriah, and grandson of Hakoz, rebuilt another section of the wall extending from the door of Elishib's house to the end of the house. The next repairs were made by the priests from the surrounding region. Next to them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired the section across from their house. And Azariah, son of Messiah, and grandson of Ananiah, repaired the section across from his house. Next was Binuai, son of Henadad, who rebuilt another section of the wall from Azariah house to the angle and the corner. Palal, son of Uzai, carried on the work from a point opposite the angle and the tower that projects up from the king's upper house beside the court of the guard. Next to him were Padadiah, son of Parosh, with the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, who repaired the wall as far as point across from the water gate to the east and the projecting tower. Next came the people of Tekoa, who repaired another section, uh, who repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. Next, Zadok, son of Ema, also rebuilt the wall across from his own house. And next to him was Shemamiah, son of Shechaniah, the gatekeeper of the east gate. Next, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, that's how you pronounce it, Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section, whilst Meshalem, son of Berechiah, rebuilt the wall across from where he lived. Malkajah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the wall as far as the housing for the temple service and merchants across from the inspection gate. Then he continued as far as the upper room at the corner. The other goldsmiths and merchants repaired the wall from that corner to the sheep gate. Thank you. I need to lie down, man. That is a challenging chapter. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Whoever said that, love you. Right. Nehemiah 3, why, why does it need to be in the word of God? Well, it's the thing that connects the dream to the reality. The community of people who rally around the common purpose and the common goal to get the job done. You'll notice in your handouts, how on earth was this wall rebuilt in 52 days? Easy. Everybody played their part. What I love about this picture is this, is that these people were not builders. It's not like they were tradesmen. Like in it, you've got politicians, like provincial leaders. You've got priests, so you've got religious leaders. Uh, You've got perfume makers, random, okay? You've got goldsmiths. You've got merchants, in other words, like salesmen. You've got all manner of people who all have this vocational background and this kind of career that they're working in. But when it comes to the dream of God, they understand that ultimately they're all called to be builders, Like maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I don't have a clue what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. And normally what we do is we connect this idea, if I find my vocation and my career, that's what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. And that's all cool. But my understanding of vocation in the word of God is that it serves the calling of God. What do I mean by that? Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. He was a missionary who planted churches. But his career was tent maker. Did he cease to be a dream builder when he made tents? No. But it was the tent making that facilitated and released him to be able to build the dream of God on his life. I wonder if you can think about it this way. Like Adam, who is a manager at Travis Perkins, like doing something tool hire, isn't it? Kind of does tool hire, right? Absolute legend. It's just really essentially a normal task. Monday to Friday, he's working, renting tools out. 
And he can do that for the glory of God. And he should bring his vocation and his career before God and say, God, would you bless it? And he should do it like a dream builder does it, which is with total integrity, total honesty, not trying to skive off work, but trying to do his very best, trying to encourage people, trying to represent Christ to them. But ultimately, Adam is called to build the church. That's, that's his calling. I mean, he might manage Travis Perkins, which is great, but he's called to build the church. He can do that in Travis Perkins. He can do that when he's raising his kids at home. He can do that when he's relating to his wife, Kerry. All of it is building towards, but it's understanding that the limit of the calling of my life is not my nine to five that I do to get income. That simply serves the calling of God and dream of God on my life. I love this idea that as we come into purpose together, we link arms as brothers and sisters of Christ saying, hey, I might not be educated at doing this, I may not seem competent at doing this or skilled at doing this, but I understand that in God, he is calling me to pick up a tool and build. You guys can sit down, give them a huge round of applause. I love that. So this really, really matters because in Nehemiah 3, there are 28 next two moments. I've called the message today, who's next? As in other words, who's next? We're doing this. So for example, Kerry is leading the homeless outreach ministry every other Wednesday night, which is amazing. But the question I ask is, who's next? Who's next to join in that? Who's next to get on board and say, you know what? I might not be a homeless outreach worker in the day. Well, I might be. It's like a manager of Travis Perkins. But you know what? As soon as I'm done there, man, I'm coming and I'm building. I think God is calling like more from us as a community. And it doesn't just start with our love for one another, although that should be obviously present. It starts with a commitment to the cause of Jesus Christ in our generation. So we could talk about the dream all day long. A dream of seeing Paul come into revival and a dream of seeing Bournemouth getting transformed by the glory of God and seeing our home lives totally change. But unless there's a sense of now's time to pick up tools, it's never going to materialize. And it seems like a heavy word, but really I'm just trying to encourage you to understand that we can be dreamers or we can be dream builders. And to be a dream builder, we can't do that without one another. We can't do it without community. But just like in the story of Nehemiah, There are three dream killers at work trying to kill off community. And the first one we see begins with D, which is helpful, and it's distraction. Distraction. One of the tactics of the enemy is to distract you in life. To get you to give your attention to something that matters far less. Maybe, and I'm not against like TV series, maybe it's binge watching TV series to the point where you now say, I've got no more time to do anything that really matters. But really, you're giving your affection and your attention to a TV series. And the the crazy things about the distractions that we face in this world generally is they lead us out of community, they lead us into isolation. Distractions try to make it egocentric about me, 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 me. What do I want? A consumeristic, materialistic, hedonistic kind of mentality. What do I want to do? And it's funny that Geshem, Tobiah, and Sanballat, these three people that show up in the story of Nehemiah, come and they try to distract Nehemiah from his God-given dream. They start to undermine it. And they start to distract him. Do you know that Sanballat, his name... In Hebrew means bramble bush. That's a hard thing to say. Everyone say bramble bush. Bramble bush, right? And this is what it translates as. Enemy 
in secret. Enemy in secret. I think it's so fitting for distraction that. Distraction can be your biggest enemy, but it is so subtle that you don't see it as an enemy. You see it as like a release. You see it as an escape. But distraction leads us out of community. So how does Nehemiah overcome the dream killer of distraction? With greater devotion. I think in this next season, as we build dreamers, we've got to, as we do dream builders, we've got to understand that God is calling for greater devotion. Like Nehemiah immediately after this distraction tactic comes from the Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem kind of happens, what he does is he rallies the people to get going, to get building. We're going to devote ourselves and our life and our resources to building this dream, devotion. I love in Acts 2 in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 get saved, and the first thing we read about these 3,000 people is they devoted themselves. They came out of the world, out of the world's mentality, they gave their life to Christ, but then they came with total devotion. Dream color number two is this, division. Division. This is one of the enemy's biggest tactics to divide the church. And it's not just the church he wants to divide, he wants to divide your homes. The enemy loves division. If you break the word down, division, the second part, vision, means Vision, <laughs> the first part, die, means two. Two visions. The enemy tries to come and bring division in the body. And it's interesting that like with Nehemiah, we see how this division plays out. Listen to what it says in chapter 4, verse 2. This is what the enemies say. What does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Has anyone heard a divisive voice in their own head like that before? Just a few of us. Verse 3. This is what they say. Tobiah says, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Like it's, I guess it's hard to get the gravitas because it sounds a bit silly, doesn't it? Ooh, did you hear what he said about the wall? He said about a fox climbing on it and the whole thing falling apart. That makes me laugh, right? Oh, that's rude, right? But I just get this sense that like what they're trying to do is put an alternative vision into their mind about the future. So let's lift it out of this for a moment. Are you really trying to repair your marriage? Really? Your marriage is rubbish. Are you really going to try and repair that? Like literally, all it takes would be a little problem just to cause you guys to divide. A little tiny fox could climb on top of your heads. <laughs> Sorry, that's my imagination going wild right there. But the enemy works like that. Can he find his way in and if he can bring division? And it's not just your marriage he wants to divide. He wants to divide you on the inside. He wants you to be divided. James talks about a person who's divided. Like, he wants to divide your attention. Like, on the one hand, you want to build God's dream, but on the other hand, you've got a vision of it not really working out, and so you just don't really want to commit. How does Nehemiah overcome division? He, by increasing the defense. This really matters. We have far too many passive believers who just get blown around by the winds of this age and not enough resilient people who stand up in the face of the enemy and defend. Listen, this is what Nehemiah says to the, um, to the people when there's this division thing we worked out. In verse 14, chapter 4, he says, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Don't be afraid of the enemy. 
Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Like literally, this is a mandate from God. It's time to fight for your families. It's time to fight. It's time to build. It's trying to pick up arms and like wrestle with this. Don't just lie down and take a beating. Fight for it. Fight for it. In fact, actually, what we read towards the end of uh, when Nehemiah is talking, it says in verse 17, the laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load, in other words, building the wall, and then listen to this, and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. So now we get this picture that as we build, we know that the enemy is going to try and undermine it and divide us and attack it, but we're going to be strong because we're going to make sure that we constantly keep our hand on the sword, on the word of God. Such an important picture. One of the first things that Jesus faces on ministry on earth is the enemy comes and tries to give him an alternative vision of the future. So the Satan tries to tempt him while he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And what does Jesus do in every instance? He quotes the word of God. This is so important. I don't want you to sleep through this. This is so important. Yeah, on the one hand, we dream build for sure. But how do we do it? We do it understanding that the enemy wants to undermine it. So what we're going to do is have one hand on the word all the time, ready to go ready to rebuff and renounce every lie and deception that the enemy sends into our life. Every word that comes into our mind that says you are not good enough. Every vision of you separating from your spouse, everything that comes in like that, that says undermine something. No, no, no. I've got the word of God in my hand. It's how you build. Build with one hand building, one hand defending and fighting. The third thing is this. Is Nehemiah, the enemies come to Nehemiah and try to discourage him. And they do this in a subtle way. And this is, I think, how the enemy does it so often in our life. He does it through rumors. Gossip. Gossip is a soul destroyer. They come to him and what they say to Nehemiah is something along the There's this rumor among the surrounding nations. Who knows if there is or isn't? What they're trying to do is slow Nehemiah down. Because actually, the propensity of people is to care about what people think. So what happens is often we're discouraged because we're not living up to the standard of the rumors that have been set around us in the sense that like I really am a hopeless case which totally affirms everything that that person says about me. Discouragement. I love Nehemiah's response. Listen to what he says in verse 8. There is no truth in any part of your story. You're making up the whole thing. And maybe you should say that to the enemy now and again. You know, there's no truth in what you're saying. You're a liar. You are a liar. And then he says this. This is Nehemiah. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining, this is what they thought, that they could discourage us and stop the work. So what did Nehemiah do? He says, so I continued to work with even greater determination. That for me is such an exciting prospect. The enemy might think you are down and in a corner and like totally under his influence and under his deception. It's trying to determine another outcome in your mind where you actually say, you know what, you, have, you are saying no truthful thing. I will not believe it. I will not accept it. And stand back up on your feet and come against him with determination. Determine in your heart, I'm going to build the dream of God in my generation. So important. And here's the big picture. We build the church of our dreams by committing to the community and serving 
the church. I want to invite the guys up. I really want to encourage us in this season because, like I say, next week we're going to do one more message on Dream Builders. And then we're going to invite people to come into the Dream Builders network. And um, we're not selling it. We don't want to make it sound better than it is because actually we don't just want people to just do this as a knee-jerk, impulsive reaction. We want people to really consider, do I want to partner with Sunny Hill in building the future church that God has laid on our heart? And the first thing we're going to do on the 10th of February, and this may put a lot of you off, is jump into a season of 52 days of prayer and fasting. We're going to come before God with a burden and a determination to say, God, we want to see your kingdom come in this district and in my home and in this nation. And we're going to be doing that over the next couple of weeks. And I really just want to say that maybe, maybe you came in here today not really understanding what your role is in all of this. Let me tell you, God has a plan and a purpose and a part for you to play that only you can play. pray together Father I thank you for your goodness I thank you for every single person who's in this room today sat here God Lord I desperately ask that you would just have your way in us and through us for your glory Father, I pray that we would know an outpouring of your Holy Spirit on us as a community. God, that we would see a greater devotion to one another and to you. God, I pray for every heart in here, God, that is tired and that is weary, where the enemy has tried to stifle them and resist them and contain them for the life that you have for them. And God, I pray, God, that you would unshackle them from depression and unshackle them from discouragement and shackle them from division. God, I pray, Lord God, that you would just move us into a new season of freedom. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. God, we ask for a great outpouring of your presence on this place. That we would live under an open heaven, God, seeing what you see. God, so often we are deflated and apathetic. But God, I pray, Lord, that you will call us and stir us and cause us to become the people that you want us to become, God, for your glory, your glory, Lord. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name.